Hello and welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as always. And today's show coming to you live from London. Just ahead on the program, desperate hours. Governments from around the world evacuating citizens from Sudan for a second straight day. More than 1,000 EU nationals have been flown out already. Dozens of U.S. diplomats evacuated too amid fears that Sudan is sliding further into all-out civil war. Also, contentious powers, disbelief, I think, at the UN as Russia chairs a meeting of the Security Council, the same body that has seen members condemn the illegal invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine, for its part, calling it a mockery of the UN system. All this as the world awaits the start of Ukraine's long-awaited spring offensive. And later on in the programme, we'll speak to Howard Buffett, the son of famed investor Warren Buffett, whose foundation has pledged $300 million in humanitarian aid to Ukraine this year. And Buffett's commitment and support to Ukraine has been immeasurable, helping Kyiv cope with its food, energy and health emergencies and more. Buffett says the motivation for his missions comes from his father, who taught him, quote, always push outside your comfort zone. And from comfort zone to the flat zone, U.S. futures little changed, as you can see, ahead of key tech earnings and a closely watched GDP report later on this week. Europe, as you can see, mostly flat too, tilted to the downside as major banks here begin reporting results. Also, Credit Suisse rescued by one-time competitor UBS last month, saying customers withdrew some $75 billion worth of deposits in the first three months of this year. And the company still suffering from customer outflows even today. UBS also now saying the full merger of both banks will take up to four years to complete. Also in Europe, LVMH investors sitting in the lap of luxury, the French luxury goods maker becoming the first European firm to reach a market cap of $500 billion equivalent. A busy show as always, but we do begin with the latest from Sudan, where desperate rescue missions continue and are underway. Governments from around the world scrambling to get their citizens out of the country as brutal fighting between two rival generals enters its 10th day. This new video shows the Dutch military evacuating its nationals. And here you can see people boarding Spain's military plane. Stephanie Bussari joins us now with more. Stephanie, good to have you. Multiple operations clearly carried out to evacuate both citizens and diplomats. Do we have any sense of how many people now have been evacuated and how many remain that are still hoping to, to get away? So, um, Julia, these uh, evacuations are happening in a very volatile situation and under the back, uh, against the backdrop of shelling, we heard of uh, a Turkish hospital just in the last hour that was hit by, uh, uh, by in, a, in a bombardment uh, that happened earlier today and 50 people have died. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's an unclear picture right now, uh, these evacuations. We know that uh, in the last hour, South Africa and Uganda have announced that they uh, evacuated around 300 citizens and um, uh, countries such as the UK, US, Japan, Canada. So it's in the hundreds of people, but thousands, hundreds of thousands still stuck. And uh, more importantly, Sudanese citizens who are feeling increasingly abandoned as countries scramble to get their citizens out, they're asking 
who will come for us. And um, many are taking to uh, private um, bus hires to, to make a very tricky, perilous journey to uh, neighboring countries such as Egypt. And um, these journeys are days long, about a thousand kilometers from Sudan to uh, Aswan in Egypt, where many are headed. And again, many people can't afford to, to leave the country. Sudan is one of the poorest countries in the world. And uh, before this um, crisis, there was already a looming humanitarian crisis. So all of these um, things are really uh, painting a very dire and desperate picture in the country. And the international uh, Red Cross is saying that they are looking for ways to get into the country to get much needed medical supplies and food and water which are dwindling uh, into the country. So it's a very, very uh, volatile situation and an unclear picture out there in, in the country, uh, Julia. Yes, evacuation efforts certainly, I'm sure, will continue. But to your point as well, humanitarian aid for those that remain vitally important too. Um, Stephanie Bussari, for now, thank you so much for that. President Putin's top diplomat in New York, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, is set to chair a UN Security Council meeting in around an hour's time. And later, he's expected to meet with the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, to discuss the fate of the Black Sea grain deal. Richard Roth joins us now. Richard, good to have you. Richard, Russia, of course, has taken over the rotating presidency of the UN Security Council. Tough to know for other nations how to handle this. Uh, ignore Russia allows them to spread their version of events, but debating with them also raises their profile too. It's, it's a difficult one. What do we expect? Yes, uh, for those who hate the UN, uh, this is the field day when the uh, mm. Russians uh, chair the Security Council meeting on Ukraine. Uh, Russia has been the president of the Security Council since April 1st for the whole month. So this isn't going to be a totally shocking day, but there will be a lot of barbs, insults, uh, critiques by many members of the UN Security Council against Russia. But everybody will have their chance to speak. I think this is almost like meeting 60 on Ukraine, maybe even more since the conflict broke out. Expected to be in the Security Council audience is Elizabeth Whalen, the sister of Paul Whalen, who has been jailed illegally in Russia. Uh, she will probably make an, any attempt to uh, speak with Lavrov about her brother. Uh, so that's what we're going to have at the UN today. The Secretary General of the UN will talk with the Russian Foreign Minister about the Black Sea grain deal. A lot of angles to this story. They're all in New York at the moment. But despite all the talking at the Security Council, that's not ending the fighting. No. And what about the presence of Russian journalists to cover this, too? Uh, Lavrov himself made some pointed uh, comments on this, a country that calls itself the strongest, smartest, freest and fairest chickened out. He was complaining about a, a lack of visas for Russian journalists, I believe. Well, this happens every time, especially with Russia now in a war and a Wall Street Journal reporter being held. The U.S. was never going to uh, try to uh, get the, these passes in. Uh, I don't know how many journalists were traveling with uh, Mr. Lavrov, but at the moment they're not here. Uh, Lavrov chairs the Security Council meeting on the Middle East tomorrow. There's still some time. Unlikely we'll see them. Yes, I think the message there is uh, for the foreign minister, look at what's going on at home rather than criticizing the United States. Richard Roth, thank you so much for your uh, input there. We look forward to that. CNN will bring Lavrov's meeting with Gutierrez live when it takes place later today. In the meantime, Russia's oil and refined products are still finding ways to buyers around the world with the help of so-called grey fleet of tankers. 
Data and satellite imagery has revealed a record amount of it changing hands at sea in ship-to-ship cargo transfers. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, what more have you found and what kind of quantity are we talking about? Yeah, so Julia, this grey fleet, as it's being called, not necessarily doing anything illegal because, as you know, the sanctions on Russian energy, the EU embargo, uh, the G7 price cap, they are structured in such a way to keep Russian oil flowing onto the market so that, of course, the rest of us don't experience more inflation than we already have. But what that is leading to are these new ships moving in, changing ownership. This is what the Grey Fleet is. And with that is coming new shipping patterns, new routes, new customers and new risks. Take a look. This calm blue sea off southern Greece, now a new hub for Russia's oil trade. Taken in mid-March, this satellite image shows oil tankers arranged in pairs. Experts say most of them involved in a cargo transfer. Data shows transactions like these have surged in recent months. This year, on average, five times more per month, dotting the picturesque waters near Greece's Kalamata port compared to 2021, according to cargo tracking firm Kepler. It's sort of become a ship-to-ship hub where smaller vessels come in from Russian ports, they transfer the cargoes onto larger vessels, and then those larger vessels will will head off through through to Asia. Matthew Wright says the rise in ship-to-ship transfers is part of a big shift in shipping patterns. A European Union ban on most seaborne Russian crude oil and refined products means Russian exports now travel much longer distances to reach Asian customers. And he says while smaller vessels are better for docking at Russian ports, they're not ideal for long-haul voyages. You can see the fact that It has loaded HSFO, which is fuel oil. Those sanctions have also given rise to what Wright calls the Grey Fleet, tankers sold since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and his data shows exclusively now transporting Russian oil or refined products, as some Western shippers started to avoid it. Using tracking data and corroborating with experts, we were able to pinpoint one of those Grey Fleet ships in this image. Here it is that larger vessel, and we traced this apparent transaction back in time. The smaller vessel docking in St. Petersburg in late February, where according to Kepler, it picked up a cargo of fuel oil. Then we tracked it all around Western Europe and back here to the Mediterranean, the Greek coast, at which point Kepler data shows it unloaded its cargo onto that larger grey tagged ship. That ship then transited the Suez Canal, apparently en route to Asia. It's not illegal what they're doing. It's essentially a story of the transfer of ownership. Oil tanker sales have surged in the past year, and among them, Kepler says, that same tanker. Here it is again, tracked to the Russian port of Novorossiysk in December. Think tank Vessels Value estimates 105 tankers of a similar size changed hands in 2022, double the volume of the previous year. It also says around a third of sales this year were to newly formed companies or undisclosed buyers. At the International Maritime Organization in London, that shift in ownership reinforcing safety concerns around ship-to-ship transfers. We're unable to determine the level of compliance um, with uh, the IMO safety and environmental protection regime. The worst case scenario would be a casualty where uh, a transfer line breaks and you have a major spill or you have an explosion uh, and fire. Um, There's myriad things that can go wrong in a ship-to-ship transfer. It's a situation that's not going away. 
as Russia's war redraws the global energy map, creating a new logistics system increasingly controlled by lesser-known players and loaded with potential risks. Well, this grey fleet, Julia, is not small. The estimate from Kepler is that it's about 400 vessels at the moment. Now, obviously, part of that is those longer distances. One international shipbroker told CNN that Russia needs four times the shipping capacity now than it did before the war to take its oil uh, to Asia. So this isn't necessarily something that Russia has arranged. This is newer players coming in, spying a commercial opportunity in a tighter market. Right now, experts are telling us they're not seeing a lot of evidence uh, of what is called dark activity, potential sanctions busting, ships turning off transponders and things like that. But that may be because for at least part of the last few months, Russian oil has been trading below the G7 price cap. If oil prices go up, of course, that could change. Mm. What a great report. Claire, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Welcome back to First Move and to Ukraine now. While Moscow is threatening to terminate the crucial Black Sea grain export deal if the G7 bans exports to Russia, the G7 itself wants to see the deal extended and expanded. Well, my next guest, a ranch owner, business executive and major philanthropist, knows full well the consequences of failure. And he's promised to double his humanitarian support. How Buffett has just returned from his seventh trip to Ukraine since the Russian invasion. As you can see here with Richard Branson, since it started back in 1999, the Howard G. Buffett Foundation has focused on food security and conflict mitigation, two concerns that are vital for Ukraine and nations that rely on their food supplies. Last year, the foundation devoted around half of its giving, that's around $150 million, to humanitarian efforts in Ukraine, helping with demining, repairing civil infrastructure and assisting farmers. This year, the foundation expects to double its donations. How Buffett believes the cost of not doing anything possible, everything possible, forgive me, to help end this war and help Ukrainians is just too high. And he joins us now from New York. Howard, fantastic to have you with us on the show. In many ways, your philanthropy targeted towards food security and conflict mitigation and public safety was sort of the perfect foundation for the challenges that Ukraine felt uh, immediately once the war began. And of course, that scaled beyond Ukraine with their, their food supplies being prerequisite around the world. Just start that with that realization moment when you recognized you could help. Well, when the war broke out, it was clear that um, it was going to have a global impact and well beyond Ukraine. And that was uh, seen and proven out fairly quickly when the Black Sea was shut down completely in the beginning. And you saw, according uh, to the World Food Program, um, you know, 70 to 100 million people pushed to the brink of starvation as a result. And, of course, it drove up food prices significantly. Uh, World Food Program used the example in Eastern Africa of a family food basket going up 55% in cost. So one of the challenges is not just the impact on commodity prices, and of course the, the energy prices were affected, but it, if you look at some of the countries that rely on not just Ukraine grain, but globally as it affects um, global food security, you see that, that the situation breeds conflict, it breeds instability, and a lot of these countries that rely on this food are already in situations where 
they're on the brink of additional conflict or going into conflict. So it's a pretty significant impact. Yeah, I mean, you took half of the fund's donations in, in 2022, as I mentioned, which is around $150 million and said, OK, we have to target that now towards helping Ukraine. And I believe around $300 million will be spent this year. I mean, there's a world of competing priorities for the foundation, whether that's outside of Ukraine or within. I know, again, given your experience, you looked at the arable land in Ukraine and said, what we have to do immediately is, is demine and get as much of that working again as we can. Just explain how the foundation is operating and, and how you're providing funds for that. Well, so when you look at demining, it, it's, you know, really, it, it's considered a war crime. It's considered the impact on civilians is considered, um, you know, a crime against humanity. And it has incredible long lasting impact. And so the faster you can clean up the mines, the, the, the better off everyone is. But one of the big things is to get agricultural land back into production. And right now it's estimated that something like 30% of Ukraine uh, is, is possibly mined. I mean, they don't know where all the mines are. So that's a significant area to cover. I was in uh, Hersan a few months ago uh, with the SES, who's the demining arm of the government. And they, were, they took me out and they, they were showing me uh, what they were doing, and they said that in two months they had cleared 500 mines. Well, there's tens of thousands of mines, so you can imagine how long it'll take. So we've got to step up the resources. We've got to coordinate uh, all of those organizations that can work on it because we have to bring the agricultural production back as fast as, as possible, um, not just from a safety standpoint of demining, but from the standpoint of increasing the GDP and um, agricultural production and exports for Ukraine. It's a really important economic uh, situation as well. I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that, but we were just showing a whole array of pictures there, Howard, and I believe they're your pictures. They're pictures that you took over the period while you were in Ukraine. Can you just describe what it was like to be in, in Ukraine and in Kherson, as you mentioned? I mean, you've been to the front lines twice. Well, one of the things is, that for, for me, um, I'm a pretty hands-on person, so mm. it helps me to see as much activity and learn from the people on the ground. And so, you know, when we were in Hersan, we were right behind a bombing of a bus station. We were a few minutes behind that. We got there. There were three civilians killed. One of the things that the Russians have started doing, a new tactic, is that they wait for the first responders to get there, and then they... Um, They'll wait 10, 15 minutes, and they start to hit the same target, trying to take out the first responders. So we were there when a few of the shells hit. Um, it's a really difficult situation to work in for everyone. And at the end of the day, this is really a war on civilians. I mean, it's a war on Ukraine's agriculture. It's a war on global security, uh, food security. And at the end of the day, you know, Ukrainians are fighting for their freedom. And I feel like if the United States can't stand up for those values and principles, which we claim are our values and principles, then I don't know where we stand up or what we stand up for. It's such an important message. I think your personal experience and being able to show others these pictures and describe the events that, that you saw and were affected by while you were there is, is also vitally important to helping people back home in America and remind them why they have to give money and, and why the support continues to be needed. Um, 
to what extent and, and what kind of feedback do you get when you come back to the United States and, and talk to people, whether that's ordinary people or, or politicians too, because there is some debate about the ongoing support. And does it, does it help with investors too? Because to your point about the, the landmines, scale is required, more money is required to, to do this quickly. Well, you know, I have a lot of friends that uh, ask me about it and, and uh, question why we need to provide the level of support. Right. And, and I, I think that, you know, the primary thing to focus on is that, you know, back in 1994, we signed an agreement, the UK signed it, Russia actually signed it as well, uh, saying that we would provide security assurances if Ukraine gave up the, the third largest, at the time, the third largest um, amount of nuclear material. And so there was a big debate in Ukraine at the time. They realized that if they agreed to this, that they would put themselves at a certain amount of risk. So, you know, I've heard people say, well, we gave uh, assurances, not guarantees, but that's really wordsmithing at this point. Because if, if Ukraine does not win this war, uh, Russia and both Putin and the top generals have stated Russia will not stop at Ukraine. Then we're at the doorstep of NATO and the United States will be 100% in this war, including probably committing troops at some point. So it's to our benefit, um, while Ukraine is willing to fight on their own territory and their own soil and, and, and lose their own people in this battle, it is clearly to our benefit to support Ukraine uh, and to have a victory. I mean, right now we're providing Ukraine with enough to fight, but not enough to win. And what we need is a strategy to make sure that Ukraine can win this war and they have to win this war. How do your friends and acquaintances respond when you explain it like that? Do, do they understand better? And how confident are you that the, the support, particularly from the United States, which has been so vital, will continue? Well, there's so much politics involved and, mm. and there's showmanship and some of that. And I think you just have to cut through all of that and realize that um, it's in our best interest, it's in Europe's best interest to make sure Ukraine wins. And you can just go down the line of, of what happens if Ukraine doesn't win. And that should be an easy way to look at it. And, you know, it, the United States has made this commitment to keep the fighting going. But we've got to step it up, and Europe has to step it up. And I've really been a little bit uh, surprised that Europe hasn't stepped it up more because they're the ones that have the higher risk physically in terms of the proximity to Ukraine. So I, I think, you know, I learned a long time ago, um, it's hard to convince people to care about something when it doesn't affect them personally. And so, you know, part of the message has to be, how it will affect them personally, and it will affect the United States. And the United States is sending billions of dollars. Why not make that money count the best that it can and, and, and implement a strategy of success and a strategy of victory? Yeah, <laughs> makes perfect sense to me. Um, the good news is the philanthropy, I believe, will continue, and, and you're clearly part of that too. We were just showing um, video of you with uh, Richard Branson as well. I know that um, you and he have been working together. Um, I want to sort of end on something that I think is vitally important, and I know it's um, a clear passion of the foundations too, which is nutrition too, and you're working to provide better nutrition, um, nutrition and a network of kitchens across Ukraine to provide that, not just for school children, I know, but for those on the front lines as well. Just describe that work, because this is clearly vital too. So I've been to a number of villages that are uh, 
within shelling distance of, of the Russians. And, and one of the things you, you just can't forget, uh, people there become kind of numb to it, is this constant thundering as it just never stops. Uh, the shelling is just is, is, is constant. And as you're, you know, I, I handed out uh, food boxes in a couple of different villages. And these people are people, this is a country that is used to contributing to feeding the world. And here we are handing out food boxes to them so they can survive. I mean, if depending on how long the war goes, but right now uh, what, what our support is projected to do is, um, which we've already fed uh, or provided over probably close to 100 meals, we'll provide 135 to 150 million meals. I mean, that's a lot of people that need help. And, and, and it's beyond uh, just the people on the front lines. You know, one in every three families in Ukraine is food insecure at this point. So you're taking a country that used to have like 5% uh, poverty, and you've already pushed them up to the 25% level, and you have to think about long-term and recovery. The recovery is going to be significant. The damage is amazing. Uh, it's really devastating. So the longer the war goes on, there's more people to feed, uh, more people that are at risk, and more civilians that are, that are being attacked. So the faster we can work to end the war is exactly what our goal has to be. Yeah. Um, I think many of our viewers listening will um, will agree with you, Howard. I've just been thinking back over our conversation. I don't suppose you're interested in a career in politics one day, are you? I, I wouldn't go enough. near politics. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I have the greatest job in the world. I, I get I have a lot of resources. My dad, my mom, you know, gave the foundation a lot of resources and and they've they told us to go out and take risks. So for us, you know, uh, our money is really, I look at it as risk capital. So when we go into Ukraine and some people will say, well, you know, you're providing things up on, along the front line. You're providing things that are very risky. You don't know what's going to happen to them. Um, that's our job to do that. I, and, and I think our job is also to encourage other foundations and, and other organizations to take that level of risk. So I, I look at it uh, as I have the greatest job in the world right now. I, I can try to help people that need help. Uh, I, I, in in Ukraine's situation, we just need to provide the support to get them through this war, and then we'll go into a different mode. I mean, we'll continue to support demining. We'll continue to so, you know, uh, support prosthetics for civilians and, and veterans who need to get on with their life, and we'll continue to support agriculture. But that's post-war, and we need to get to where we are at post-war. Yeah, and I know you'll continue to fight for that. And um the ultimate reward, I think, in terms of taking risk is, is helping these people that are in need through no fault of their own. Howard, fantastic to chat to you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Howard Buffett there. Welcome back to First Move. One year after a banking scandal saw their assets frozen, thousands of customers in one lender in rural China are still trying to get their money back. Some say they've been tracked, harassed or physically attacked by local officials. Selena Wang spoke to some of the customers. In China's central Hunan province this month, demonstrators chant, give me my money back. One poster reads, America's Silicon Valley Bank customers got their money back in three days, but China's Henan Village Bank's customers haven't been given a cent in a year. These protesters are victims of a banking scandal that started last April when several small banks in Henan froze depositor funds, 
impacting an estimated 400,000 customers, according to a state-run magazine. Some depositors, myself included, can no longer survive. Because all of our money is stored there, some people may commit suicide. Some depositors may hurt others. Everyone has a tipping point. This banking victim in Beijing is a lawyer who is gathering depositors to sue the local authorities. He says all they want is their money back, but instead they're being tracked, harassed, or even worse. While the banks are now open for business, an estimated several thousand still cannot access their money. The banks and authorities have ignored the victims' relentless efforts to get answers over the past year. We're not revealing the identities of all the victims who spoke to us in order to protect their safety. This couple in Shanghai says earlier this year, the government hired people to stake outside of their apartment for weeks. On March 4th, right before China's biggest annual political meeting in Beijing, they say their car was suddenly stopped on the streets of Shanghai. They were driving to meet a relative and shot this encounter on a phone. Get in our car, the man in the brown jacket demands. No, she replies. So many people have surrounded us. What are you trying to do, she asks. The couple says the men then threw black cloth bags over their heads and drove them to an island outside of Shanghai. We were locked up for 11 days. They illegally detained us and confiscated our bank cards, phones and wallets. I tried my best to cooperate with them. Still, they beat me. He says the authorities were paranoid they might travel to Beijing to demonstrate during the political meeting. The banks, regulators and local authorities have not responded to CNN's multiple attempts to contact them about these serious allegations. Last summer, police violently crushed peaceful demonstrators demanding their money back. Then weeks later, authorities blamed the scandal on financial fraud, arrested hundreds of alleged suspects and promised to start paying depositors back. China's media has reported that the government has the crisis under control, but has ignored the stories of these bank victims. Meanwhile, pro-communist party social media influencers have been zeroing in on the bank failures in the U.S. This one says, explosive news, the U.S. is facing a catastrophe. Another says it might be the end of the U.S. if they fail to handle this well. And state tabloid Global Times published this dramatic infographic. But the U.S. government quickly stepped in to pay back the depositors in full. Have you received any sympathy, any response from the authorities? No, I have not. The government's attitude is that as long as they've suppressed the people with problems, there is no need to pay back the money. It is completely different from how Silicon Valley Bank was handled. This depositor from Zhejiang province went to the protests last summer and says he was beaten by the police. If I can't get the money soon, then my children and I can only live on the streets. Do you have hope that you're going to get your money back? People like us have been robbed of money, yet we are treated like criminals. If my money cannot be withdrawn, only one option is left for me, which is death. Experts say the crisis in Hunan is just the tip of the iceberg as China's economy slows and debt balloons. What happened in Hunan is likely to occur elsewhere in the country. They're willing to oppress people using the police in order to get the message across to the banking system that they can't play fast and loose with money. Back in Beijing, the lawyer says his relentless legal efforts may be their only hope.
If you do get the money back, what is your plan? Leave the country with kids and parents, because I want my children to grow up in a democratic, free, and rule-of-law country. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. Welcome back to First Move. UN figures show India was the world's third largest emitter of carbon dioxide in 2020. But that picture is changing. It already has the means to generate over 40% of its power from renewables. And the government has now set an ambitious target of taking that ratio to 50% by 2030. Well, step forward Indian renewable energy giant Renew, with a portfolio including more than 120 wind, solar and hydro projects across nine Indian states. Renew says part of its goal is helping India to reach net zero, and it says the government and private sector working together is the key in the fight against climate change. Joining us now is Sumant Sinha. He's founder and CEO of Renew. Fantastic to have you on the show, sir. I notice a change. The last time we spoke, you were Renew Power, and now you're Renew. What's in the name change and what does it mean for the company? Yeah, thank you, Julia, so much for having me on the show again. Uh, look, I think the, you've alluded to a very important thing. While the change is small, uh, but it's actually very important, uh, simply because what it means is that we are trying to really become a much more broader decarbonization partner rather than a company that is focusing only on the power sector. So certainly we are going to continue doing that. But we also intend to look at corporates and help them try to decarbonize as they move forward on their own journeys uh, and provide them a much more broader set of solutions, which could be around green hydrogen, uh, green fuels, uh, carbon credits, uh, digital solutions, and so on. So we're actually trying to become a broader company, which is really operating uh, in the decarbonization space more generally. And uh, that is really why we changed our name from Renew Power to Renew. It's uh, subtle, but it's very important to us. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge opportunity. And I think the major point to make here is that if the nation isn't coordinating and organizing with the private sector, then some of the lofty targets for the Indian government, like reaching that target uh, of generating 50% of power from renewables by 2030 simply isn't going to happen. I mean, isn't it already a huge challenge? It's beyond ambitious to try and achieve this in the space of, what, seven years. What does it mean for you specifically in terms of opportunity, but also, I think, challenges? What more do you need from the government to achieve it? Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right that India has set a very ambitious target. But I think it's absolutely necessary that countries like India uh, do set such uh, aspirational targets because, frankly, as we all know, we really don't have a choice. Um, and it's not just India. I think every other country around the world has to take leadership uh, in their own way and set targets that they then have to strive to meet. Now, India, as you know, uh, as you said, is the third largest carbon emitting country. Uh, given the growth that we uh, have in the country over the next several years, if we continue to grow in the same way, which is really carbon intensive, then obviously that will not be good for uh, the uh, environment and for the world as a whole. And I think, therefore, that the Prime Minister uh, uh, Narendra Modi has taken a very positive step in really setting targets that are really looking at focusing on growing in a very different way and decarbonizing the economy as we grow, continue to grow as well. What that means for us essentially is, uh, obviously, we have to work very closely with the government. Uh, while the government is setting targets, ultimately, it's up to the private sector to actually, you know, uh, continue to sort of do action on the ground and meet those targets. 
And that's not just in India, but in every other country in the world, the same thing needs to happen. Now, what are the challenges? The challenges are many, uh, Julia. I think just given the scale of what we're trying to achieve collectively, uh, there are a number of things that we need to do. I think number one, of course, is uh, uh, finding the appropriate amounts of land. Uh, two is building the interconnect or the transmission networks. Three is obviously we have to source equipment. Four, we have to hire people. And five, then we have to create all these assets on the ground. And I think all of those areas, not just in India, but everywhere globally, uh, are being constrained uh, given the scale of growth that we require to meet the challenge. And so I think all of us have to collectively put in our best foot forward to make this happen. Yeah, people, infrastructure, never mind anything else. All of this needs scaling up yesterday. And, and the hope is that it can happen within the space of a few years in order to be able to, to hit some of these targets that are expected in the next sort of seven to ten. Um, does India need the equivalent? And I use the United States as the example simply because I think it's the biggest we've ever had. The inappropriately named Inflation Reduction Act, which seemed to be the most comprehensive climate bill that we've seen around the world. That surely presents opportunities for you internationally, perhaps, to invest in the United States. But rather than decrying it in, for example, the EU has done and sort of suggesting that it's creating competition, isn't this the kind of thing that every nation needs to be announcing and applying in order to create a global solution to, to tackling climate change? No, you're absolutely right, Julia. And of course, while countries may decry the uh, industrial policy nature of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the reality is that it's in service of a good uh, objective, which is to decarbonize and to move the world closer to net zero as fast as possible. And so therefore, if it actually uh, leads to a genuine race towards net zero, I think that's something that needs to happen. Now, obviously, the question for all of us is, uh, as corporates, is whether therefore we all tend to look at the US market or whether we continue to focus on our domestic markets or our home markets. And I think we have to do a bit of both. Uh, we cannot ignore what's happening in the U.S. Um, and so we do have to look at opportunities there. But at the same time, we obviously cannot ignore what's happening in our home markets. And we have to continue to add capacity uh, at home as well. Uh, now, of course, if India does come out with something similar, uh, then, of course, that would be a great positive because it will bring down costs for uh, clean energy in general. Uh, now, India has done something similar, not, of course, of the same scale. But, for example, India has announced a national green hydrogen policy. We've come out with these very aggressive targets for renewable energy. We are building out transmission set systems across the country and allowing renewable energy to tap into it uh, without a charge. So that's actually a very big benefit. So there are a number of things that India is doing as well, which hopefully will lead to the development of a pretty large domestic market and will help us get closer to the targets that the Prime Minister said, which are, as you said earlier, ambitious but necessary. It's interesting on green hydrogen. I was in the Middle East last year and um, obviously bearing in mind um, the geography and the uh, extent of exporting of uh, fossil fuels from that region, there was a sort of reticence to discuss green hydrogen and concerns about still the risk reward. Are you saying actually based on the incentives that India's provided as far as you're concerned, we're sort of past that tipping point for green hydrogen? Because that would be huge. I think, Julia, not yet, because ultimately green hydrogen, keep in mind, is competing with grey hydrogen, which is a lot cheaper today, given where gas prices are in most geographies. And we're also competing with blue hydrogen, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, also something that is currently cheaper. 
and and therefore you know i think green hydrogen still has a way to go before we can actually be super competitive with the other forms of hydrogen but that's really where government policy need is 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 important because we need mandates for green hydrogen uh, and just like in solar where prices came down i think similarly the same thing can happen for green hydrogen as well as the ecosystem builds up so i think we need an initial set of mandates across the world for users of grey hydrogen to move towards green and i think you'll get to you'll get to the tipping point then fairly quickly but keep in mind also that green hydrogen is the basis for a lot of the green fuels which will go into things like shipping and into aviation and therefore it's it's a very important uh, prerequisite green hydrogen for really getting into the hard to abate sector so uh, collectively we have to push forward and make green hydrogen competitive because that's going to really take forward the decarbonization into other areas of energy beyond just the power sector which is really something that is very important now yeah i couldn't agree more i, I it's going to be truly transformative we just have to get there we need the investment to get there um great to chat to you so as always 20 more questions for you but we'll reconvene uh, very soon i hope sumit's in her there the founder and ceo of renew so great to have you on thank you Welcome back to First Move coming to you live from London. Forget about Chat GPT, it's all about Chat GMT here in the United Kingdom, a nation gearing up for a royal coronation. After Sunday's London Marathon, it's all about sore muscle sensation. As for UK weather, it's all about chilly spring resignation. What else did I expect? My teeth were even chattering. And in business, the FTSE up 6% so far this year. Not a bad valuation. And casting a London eye to the US markets now, a modestly higher formation ahead of this week's important tech earnings data. Continued signs of corporate resiliency despite the many economic uncertainties, including a solid start to earnings season with results coming in some 5% above expectations so far. That's modest expectations, of course, got to provide the context there. For many US consumers who still like to shop for household items at brick and mortar stores, this one hits pretty hard. Bed, Bath and Beyond, a beloved home goods retailer that was a true lifeline for consumers during the pandemic, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Thousands of employees could lose their jobs. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, I feel like it's been embattled now for, for many yeah. months, if not years, and even the pandemic couldn't save this one. Um, what can we expect? Can anyone ride to the rescue at this late stage or is it pretty much all over? I mean, this is winding down operations mm. and the company in its, in its filing, its bankruptcy filing, says that it expects to be closing all of those doors by June 30th, Julia. And you're so right to point out just like the cultural significance. And I mean, in pop culture, there are always references to its 20 percent coupon. I mean, I don't think anybody in the United States uh, can say they don't know somebody who decorated their dorm room 100 percent from the coupons at Bed Bath & Beyond. You know, no frills, just stuff piled up high. But they made a lot of mistakes recently. And for a company um, that was really iconic and a household name and making money until 2019, it unraveled here pretty quickly. So those coupons, by the way, a lot of people have been asking, those coupons, um, they will be honored, you know, through tomorrow, but Wednesday they won't take them anymore. Um, if you have gift cards, those will be accepted until May 8th and then store returns until um, May 24th. But, you know, people I know who you know, popped in to see if they could find any deals say that, you know, 
know, they're basically even selling the shelves at this point in some so many of these stores. We're talking about 360 Bed Bath & Beyond stores. And then Bye Bye Baby is also a brand that they own. Um, you know, goes without saying what they sell. Bye Bye Baby will be closing as well. 120 of those stores. It's about 14,000 uh, workers here overall. So they've secured financing um, from a lender to just work through these um, these closures and, and have enough money for financing to get through getting rid of all this stuff. It's just a giant going out of business sale at this moment. Yeah, I read actually this morning that they've already closed several hundred stores over the past year, but that those stores have been snapped up by others. So what do we know in terms of job losses, if we know anything at this stage? And I guess the hope is perhaps those people can, can find work elsewhere. We hope so. And we do know that there is still aggressive hiring in the retail sector, um, you know, overall. That's an interesting part of it. It's, it tends to be a lower wage uh, part of the of the food chain. But, you know, when you look at Target and you look at Costco and, and even Amazon warehouses, a lot of these places, um, there may be a place for these 14,000 uh, workers to find, um, to find a home here. It's just really kind of a sad story from something in 1971 that was... Um, you know, started in, in the New York City suburbs and really grew into a cultural cultural uh, phenomenon. I mean, re- referenced in sitcoms, you know, and songs, you know, it was just something that was just around so ubiquitous. Uh, and it was part of the meme stock craze. Remember uh, yes. last year? Uh, so yes. it's, it's just been part of the, the cultural mood for so long. Um, and now, I mean, it's very likely someone will buy the name, as we've seen happen in other big retail closures. You know, they you've seen a lot of companies that have gone, you know, very prestigious companies that <laughs> that have gone the way of the dodo bird. But then the name comes back up in some other way, shape or form. So, yeah, we'll, we'll I was going to say, I think there are people out there that not in the United States that may never have heard this if it hadn't been for the meme moment. And, and I think that probably bought them time, actually, with the share price rise. But right. but not enough. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.